0: check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
1: I am Zach Foss, and today we are breaking down Pernod Ricard, a business whose history dates back to 1797. Today, the business is the second largest global producer of wine and spirits with a portfolio of 17 of the top 100 spirits brands, including Absolute Vodka, Beef Eater Gin, Jameson Irish Whiskey, and Malibu Rum. The portfolio produces north of 12 billion euro in sales and generates an impressive 60% gross margin and high 20% operating margin. To break down Pernod Ricard, I'm joined by Swetha Ramachandran, a fund manager at Artemis Investment Management. During this conversation, we explore the interplay between luxury goods and spirits, the post-COVID normalization and consumption trends, including the broader trajectory of the spirits industry, the importance of China and India to the future growth of the business, and the company's acquisition strategy. We hope you enjoy this breakdown of Pernod Ricard. So Swetha, thank you for joining us to break down Pernod or as you aptly inform me, Pernod Ricard, a spirits business that interlopes with a luxury brand, a CPG business. I think maybe just to set the table, let's talk broadly about the industry that they operate in and how you think about the business from that perspective. And then we'll go into the specifics of their business.
0: Absolutely. And I think this is really interesting when you look at the spirits industry overall, is that actually less than half of the global volume in spirits is made up of by what we know to be Western style spirits. About 75% of it, volume-wise, is made up of by local categories. And the biggest of these is a baiju, which dominates the Chinese market. It's a fermented rice liquor, makes up 98% of spirits consumption in China. And that, on its own, makes up about 31% of global spirits volume. So when we're looking at Western-style spirits, which is important because that is primarily the area that Pernod Ricard operates in, that market, in terms of the contribution to the global industry, is only 23% volume-wise but much more significant value-wise, nearly 40% of total value because it tends to be higher priced and more premium. And that's exactly the market Pernod Ricard is operating in.
1: And then I think maybe it's just helpful to talk about the most relevant brands. People probably are familiar with the brands themselves, but not who owns them. What are the ones that you think are most relevant here?
0: In terms of Pernod's brands, they own about 240 of them, but chief among them, I think, if we step back a little bit how they acquired them, this is a company that was really formed by the merger of Pernod and Ricard, both of which were aniseed based stis or Liqueurs in France. One of them founded in 1805, which was Pernod, and then the young upstart Ricard brand, which launched in 1932. And the merger of these two rivals in 1975 is what has brought about this combination called Pernod-Ricard, often shortened to Pernod, as you said, even though it's really the Ricard family that's been calling the shots ever since that merger. The founder, Paul Ricard, his son, Patrick, who ran the company from 1978 onwards, his mantra was very much, he had an ambition, which was conquer Europe and then the world. And we saw a hint of what this might mean for their future strategy when they first acquired Irish distillers in 1988, which actually gave it its very successful Jameson Irish whiskey brand. Today, Jameson really defines the category of Irish whiskey and has about a 67% value share of that category worldwide. But the real game changer, I think, for the industry, as well as Perno, was when the Seagram carve-up happened in the year 2000. This was a highly fought over set of assets, the Seagram beverage assets. So Brown, Foreman, and Bacardi had a rival offer. Diageo and Perno had one going. And it wasn't until the very last minute that Diageo and Perno sealed the deal to acquire Seagram's beverage assets, which were then carved up between the two. And this was really quite transformational, not just for the spirits industry, but for Pernod specifically going forward, because it gave them what are some of its crown jewels today. It gave it Chivas Regal, Martel Cognac, the Glenlivet, all of that came by way of the acquisition of the Seagram assets, which was an $8 billion deal. So it was quite sizable at the time. And what it also gave the company were these amazing routes to market. So for example, in emerging markets prior to that, Pernod had very little presence there. And this deal really helped open them up into these markets, which are so critical to its current as well as future growth. That was the first of many deals. But after that, it followed up with a deal of Allied Domecq, a UK-based spirits manufacturer, which it had itself usurped Allied to be number two in the global spirits industry after the Seagram assets were acquired. And then it ended up swallowing Allied in whole together with Fortune Brands. That gave it brands such as Malibu, Rum, Beefeater Gin. Some of the champagne brands that we know at Pernod, such as Mum and Perrier Jouet, that came as a result of this acquisition as well. And then I think the final mega deal with this company was in 2008, where, in somewhat crazy timing when you think about it, just in June 2008, before it all kicked off, they completed the acquisition of Vin and Sprit, the Swedish state owned manufacturer of absolute vodka. So, all of that has really put the company where it is today, which is as the number two global spirits player. With leading category dominance in categories such as Irish whiskey, it's the global number two in Scotch. It is the tied number two in cognac. And these are very interesting categories because they're quite specifically constrained in terms of supply, as well as the ability to manufacture it, which creates quite high barriers to entry.
1: That's really helpful background. I think the other question naturally then becomes, I have a general sense that the industry is somewhat consolidated given the presence of Renault and Diageo. Where does Pernod sit in that global ranking and consolidation? And how do you think about just their footprint in these different categories and different countries and the scale and scope of the business?
0: I think the hard yards in terms of consolidation for the industry are really past most of these companies. So Diageo has firmly entrenched its position as the global number one. Pernod is not far behind. It has about two thirds of the sales of Diageo, but just over half of its profit base. And the reason for that lies in a different market mix. So Diageo, very overweight, the highly profitable U.S. spirits pool, Pernod, number two in that market and investing much more heavily behind emerging markets where it's an investment phase. And so the margins tend to be a little bit lagging in those markets where it's currently ramping up its presence. But overall, a very credible number two in the overall industry. It's interesting, though, that on the face of it, the spirits industry can seem more fragmented than the brewing industry. Where, for example, the top five brewers have about two thirds of the share of the market, while the top five spirits companies only have about one third of the share of the market, and that's really because there are a lot of mom and pop independent spirits brands that still have not been consolidated, and many of these larger companies are trying to do that via bolt-on deals. But when you've acquired the scale that Diageo or Pernod have, you really need something meaningful in order to move the dial, which is why it remains a fragmented industry. Overall, but unlike beer, it also encompasses a lot of different subcategories. And I think that's where when you look under the hood, some of these subcategories can actually be quite concentrated, which is attractive because it's that level of concentration at the subcategory level, whether it's scotch or cognac or Irish whiskey, that actually gives those specific categories superior pricing power to those that aren't as concentrated.
1: And then I think just to zoom out, what is it that makes spirits such a solid business? I look at the gross margins that these guys work with and their ability to sell at a premium seems quite defensible. If you look at the longevity of these brands, it's quite durable. What is it that makes that possible?
0: Put it as a combination of staying power and pricing power. So staying power, because many of these brands have longevity, have provenance, have history, there is something that requires them, for example, to be produced in a particular area. You can't call cognac, cognac, unless the grapes that make up the cognac, are acquired from a very specific part of Western France in Charente. You can't, by law, call whiskey scotch unless it's been bottled and aged in oak casks in Scotland. So all of that creates these strong barriers to entry, which actually create quite a cachet around many of these brands, help them with pricing power over time. And then I think they also speak to a facet of consumer behavior that's evolving, which is this whole trend towards drinking less, but drinking better. So this premiumization, which we've seen in other aspects of life, has actually been very prominent in the spirits industry for the better part of two decades now. So even as volumes have actually been flat to slightly down globally for spirits, sales revenues have actually gone up because of a combination of pricing, as well as more importantly, mix, which is basically people drinking less, but trading up to more expensive variants, which again is quite positive for the margins of these companies. It's also a relatively staple category in the sense that it's not something where your level of discretionary income necessarily influences your level of consumption, although we are seeing that theory tested in the short term because of the supercharged demand that we saw during the COVID period. That's throwing up some dislocations at the moment. But taking a longer view of the spirits industry, it tends to be an industry that moves through quite long cycles, remains quite resilient. We saw that during the financial crisis, for example where volumes didn't actually go down very much, what happened was a temporary pause to the trading up phenomenon, which then reasserted itself as the GFC wound down. So that's, I think, one of the reasons that the barriers to entry, the wide moats that some of these brands have, the benefit that scale offers some of the leading companies. So this is really an industry because it's largely fixed cost base, where scale has the benefit of being able to drive outsized margin expansion. So that is really, again, something that we see coming through. Capital intensity, while historically has been high, is much lower than for, say, the brewing industry because of the whole value over volume strategy that many of these companies deploy. So for a whole host of these reasons, and I didn't mention the most important, which is exposure to emerging market consumers who are themselves trading up and where the market remains severely underpenetrated. We briefly discussed China earlier, where 98% of all spirits consumption is made up by non-Western style spirits. And international spirits are a mere 1.6% of that total market. So even though for Pernod, China is an important market driving about 15% of sales, it barely registers on the scale of the total market, which gives us an idea of how much growth runway there is in that market as it continues to grow, as young people discover Western style spirits. Similarly in India with a demographic dividend, 20 million people expected to be joining the legal drinking age population every year. That's, again, a sizable, addressable market that these brands have not yet met that offers opportunity in the long term.
1: We haven't really discussed the basics of the business and spoke about how from a regulatory perspective, and perhaps that's the wrong word choice, you can only produce some of these spirits in certain regions and there's certain barriers to entry. What is the basic business model here? You produce a spirit, you slap a brand on it, you distribute it. It's not that easy. How do you think about it?
0: So if we look at what Pernod actually does, how does this company make money? It essentially is a simple model on the face of it in that it manufactures spirits and wines, operates in more than 101 production facilities, distributes 240 brands across 160 different markets. And this is through a combination of organic growth as well as M&A, it's risen to become the second largest spirits player in the world. It has an approach that it calls grain to glass which helps uniquely highlight its vertically integrated approach as a brand owner, as a manufacturer, as well as a distributor of its products, except, of course, in certain markets like the U.S. where they're prevented from distributing because of prohibition and the associated amendment to the Constitution. But essentially, spirits manufacturing basically involves transforming agricultural raw materials, which are mainly grain-based, into spirits using fermentation, distillation, as well as aging. And then I think the important part here is the marketing of that product is building up brand equity through advertising, marketing, as well as importantly, through distribution. So here we have consumers who consume these products in the on-trade, which is the restaurant and bar channel, as well as the off-trade, which is at home. And that was clearly the aspect of consumption that really boomed during lockdown when we were all sitting at home having Zoom cocktails. Today, the off-trade actually drives most spirits consumption around the world. The entree has become a little bit smaller, but the entree is very important because that's where brands get built. So when you go to a bar and you ask for a Jameson on the rocks or a particular brand that you're into, that typically tends to happen in the entree to help entrench that image in your mind so that then when you're at a liquor store or at a supermarket, you know to look for that brand by name. So that's really the essence of how the company makes money. When Alex Ricard, the current CEO, took over in 2015, He basically said that the company needed, quote unquote, less complexity, more simplicity, more focus. Following this, what they did was simplify their organization, which used to have 22 management entities, somewhat unwieldy, into just 10. So this is now a combination of regional management companies, as well as brand-owning companies. And the brand companies are important because they're responsible for developing the overall global brand strategy for their respective brands as well as assets that can be deployed at a local level by the market companies, which are the regional companies. So this is the structure that enables the business to happen. It's interesting that compared to other spirits companies, it's a somewhat decentralized structure relative to its peers, where local management specifically is actually empowered to be agile, to be able to react to local conditions rather than by diktat from the center. So that's something that distinguishes it from other business models in the industry. And then when it comes to revenue growth and the focus on how it builds its book of business, the revenue growth really is a combination of volume growth, price increases, as well as consumers trading up, which is essentially mix to higher priced variants. But that algorithm has actually evolved quite materially in the last 20 years away from being volume focused towards being value focused, which is to focus more on these higher priced premium tiers where price increases are more readily taken because demand typically is less elastic, and also where trading up or premiumization can drive further gains. And the reason this is quite essential to this industry is that costs are actually predominantly fixed, which is why that incremental percentage point of revenue growth that you can get from pricing or from mix can be three times as accretive to margin as an incremental percentage point of volume growth which is why everybody has been pretty much pursuing some variant of this premiumization strategy. But at the same time, the consumer has given them permission to do that. It's not that they're forcing premiumization down the throats of consumers. There is an underlying willingness among consumers to trade up, which these companies have readily played into given the benefits it has had to their own business models. So the algorithm that we should expect from a company like Pernod Ricard on their own targets is mid-single-digit organic growth, more led by price and mix than volume and an additional 50 to 60 basis points of margin expansion a year, which is again, a function of leverage driven by scale. So that buy less, buy better has really influenced every aspect of its business model from the top line down to margin expansion. And then I think there's also market strategy, which is that when you're operating in over 160 countries, it can sometimes get easy to lose sight of what's really important But really, there are four markets that it has labeled must-win markets, and these are markets which collectively account for over 50% of its revenues, and importantly, over two-thirds of its profit pool. And these markets are the US, China, India, and global travel retail. So these are really the four markets in which the company is acutely focused on in terms of driving growth going forward, because that's really where the vast majority of incremental revenue growth as well as profit growth is going to come from in the future. One thing we really like to see in the business model is gross margins, because to us, when we look at brands, gross margins tend to be quite a pure indicator of pricing power. We also don't like to see gross margins very wildly because that can indicate, for example, if we see a very aggressive expansion of gross margin in a short period of time, it can sometimes indicate that maybe the company is squeezing its suppliers too hard, or maybe it is sacrificing product quality, neither of which is optimal in the long term. And here, I think Pernod has a very interesting business model, which is that over time, for the last decade plus, it has shown pretty stable to flat gross margins. There are certainly some ups and downs on a yearly basis because of factors like commodity cost inflation, freight, for example, glass, all of these things that make a difference. But broadly, gross margins have remained around 60%, which we like to see because we don't think then the business is working its suppliers or undercutting on product quality. And similarly, another thing we like to see in branded businesses particularly is the level of advertising spend, because that can sometimes be the first line item to get sacrificed when times are getting tough and the company might feel pressure to make quarterly earnings. Here, again, we're quite comforted that over time, there's been a change in accounting standard that optically suggests that a percentage has reduced. But broadly speaking, adjusting for that, advertising as a percentage of sales has remained flat at about 16%. Which again, we like to see because that's a sign of a company that's taking its brand seriously, investing with a long-term future. Despite these two being flat, gross margins being flat, advertising as a percentage of sales being flat, the company has managed to increase its operating margin by about 800 basis points in the last 15 years. So that's quite substantial from 20% in the year 2005 to 28% in the year just ended June 2023. The reason that is important is because that really, in a nutshell, encapsulates the appeal of the Spirit's conglomerate business model, which is that a wide portfolio is helpful because if you plug in an additional brand onto your existing distribution infrastructure that was built for one less brand, there's really very little marginal cost and very high marginal profit. So that's why these companies keep acquiring They want to keep bolting on brands, especially those that are resonating with consumers, because that helps them drive not just incremental revenue growth, but incremental profit, which is disproportionate relative to the revenue that it adds.
1: And then if I compare this to other beverage businesses, we did a conversation on Coca-Cola, which is really more of a brand manager in that it outsources most of its production to their bottlers. How does it work for spirits? Do they typically have vertical integration Are they outsourcing and partnering on the production side? Because they still obviously have very impressive gross margins, as you highlighted. Just curious if they have that level of capital intensity in the production side.
0: Absolutely. So the big difference here is that Pernod does make its product. Other than the investments that it's made into brands where it's a minority investor, all of its brands are bottled, made, manufactured in-house. And some of them have to be. So Scotch and Cognac, because of the restrictions on provenance, they have to set up facilities in those particular regions where they can manufacture them. And again, here, this is a really important point because it calls into highlight the importance of working capital. Some of these categories, such as premium brown spirits, cognac, scotch, Irish whiskeys, they have pretty lengthy aging requirements. You need to be able to age something for a minimum of three years in order to call it scotch. Similarly, cognac, depending on what you're going for, if it's VS, VSOP, or XO, you have to age for two, four or 10 years. So all of that actually means that that business is traditionally more working capital intensive than it is fixed capital intensive. And in fact, for the last seven years, net working capital has averaged roughly just less than 5 billion euros in absolute terms, which is about 55% of sales. So that has led to an annual outflow of cash of about 200 million euros, which is roughly about 2% of sales. So again, this is meaningful because You need to have a wide portfolio in order to be able to absorb this level of working capital outflow in the sense that you need brands that are also immediately cash generative that do that heavy lifting of cash generation while you can then go invest with a long-term view into aging these spirits, which will be where, of course, the magic and the pricing power comes through the aging process. But nevertheless, in the short term, that does require working capital, which again, I think is interesting at this juncture in time because the opportunity cost of that capital is much higher than it was in the past. And I think that's also one of the reasons where we had seen maybe some startups in some of these categories that were flush with capital in a zero cost of capital environment, who are now maybe not finding it so easy to carry on that strategy when the carrying cost of inventory is much higher than it has been in the past. So here, I think the conglomerates and the larger companies with wider portfolios have a significant edge in being able to invest behind these categories of aging spirits which also longer term are the most value creative categories.
1: So if you consider the narrative around spirits businesses, I think that people started to discuss the association with luxury brands, but also being cognizant of the fact that they are CPG businesses. How do you think about the structural versus cyclical versus secular nature of these businesses?
0: That's a particularly pertinent question at the moment, because it seems like not a week goes by that we hear about a spirits company that is having some problem somewhere in the world. The temptation then is to conflate all of these problems. It's similar. I liken it to the Anna Karenina quote, which is that every spirits company is unhappy in its own way, in the way that Remy is particularly suffering from destocking in U.S. Cognac. Diageo has an issue with Latin American inventory. They're not necessarily all the same issues. But what we are seeing as a common thread lying through them all is this feature of COVID demand having distorted our view of what normalized growth should be. Because we saw very strong growth coming out of the pandemic, fueled by what the Campari CEO has labeled revenge conviviality. This idea that we've all been deprived of social contact, have all wanted to go out, party, drink, et cetera. That has hugely benefited the spirits industry. Stimulus checks, particularly in the most profitable spirits market, the US have not hurt either. And all of that now that we're lapping the absence of all of that has basically led to a bit of a lull in growth, which again, has people wondering whether this is structural or cyclical. So in our understanding of what we have seen to be past cycles in the spirits industry, it seems to us that that structural runway for growth remains pretty intact. 2022 was the first year where spirits overtook beer in terms of share of throat among the US consumer. To be fair, it's really wine that's seeding that's the biggest share donor to spirits more than beer. It's quite remarkable because It speaks to greater propensity among younger legal drinking age consumers who are entering drinking population for the first time are more likely today to enter that category through spirits than they are through beer or through wine. So that trend remains unchanged. Similarly, we have demographics in emerging markets such as India and China, which are quite visible for the next decade and plus, where again, the underpenetration of Western style spirits in those markets creates a strong and long runway for growth. So I think unpacking the cyclical from the structural at this time can seem a bit complicated. And there is a tendency sometimes to say, well, premiumization went on for 220 years. Clearly, it's come to an end when actually I think it's a bit more nuanced than that is that we're probably similar to during the time of the GFC, taking a bit of a pause from premiumization. But over the long term, all the trends that we know about younger consumers, generation moderation, which is how they're referred to, Trends towards drinking less but better. All of that, I think, suggests that the longer term runway for spirits remains quite intact.
1: And then how do you compare and contrast that to different global areas? You made reference to India and to China and the importance to the business. Presumably, the runway is significant there. How important are those jurisdictions to their future growth prospects?
0: For Pernod, particularly important. And this is why I think the company is also a little bit distinct from its peers in the spirits world. In that it is disproportionately highly exposed to emerging markets. So, about 47% of its revenues are derived from emerging markets, 53% from developed markets. And that even balance actually is substantially higher than its peers, who would be much more developed market skewed. In China, the fact that Martel, which has a 40% share of the Chinese cognac market, barely registers in the scale of the total Chinese spirits market, it has less than a 30 basis point share where again, 98% of that market is dominated by the 800 pound gorilla, which is Baiju, speaks to the fact that the runway for growth is enormous. So even though China is very important to Pernod at 15% of its sales, Pernod in a way is not very important to China because of how small it is today. And that I think is where the opportunity lies to convert younger consumers who are more social media savvy, who are more globally connected to try something new, Baijiu is never going to be displaced. It's a very important part of Chinese culture, very associated with banqueting, very associated with work culture as well. But over time, we believe that the younger population in China potentially could look to supplement Baijiu consumption with something that's not perhaps as traditional and offers a different image, which is what Martel does. In addition to the entire other range, the 230 plus brands that the company offers, again, which currently really don't play at all in that market. India is an interesting case because there's clearly an appetite for whiskey there. India consumes about 260 million cases of whiskey a year, of which scotch is less than about seven and a half million. So even though India is the biggest destination by export for scotch whiskey by volume, it still pales in comparison to the amount of local whiskey that's consumed, which is not grain based, it's molasses based, it's typically lower priced. And Western spirits are somewhat shut off from the Indian market at the moment because of very prohibitive and high tariffs of about 150 percent of the retail price because of some regulatory barriers that exist, which the industry hopes will be removed one day. And should that happen, I think the question isn't how much demand there will be. It's whether these companies, including Pernod, will be able to supply the market, whether there will be enough bottles of Shivas Regal and the Glenlivet to actually supply the Indian market with the latent demand that there clearly exists.
1: And then I guess on the topic of luxury, I look at LVMH that has a partnership with Diageo for some of their premium champagne brands. How do you think about what's a luxury category versus maybe an attainable, high-quality category? Using Jameson as an example, perhaps that's wrong, but how do you think about the different segmentation within their portfolio?
0: Sure, if we think about categories like vodka and gin... They don't convey that same image, perhaps, that champagne or cognac or scotch do. There are two reasons for that. I think, firstly, the aging characteristics of cognac, of scotch lend something special to it, which is the idea that it has taken time to make this product before it arrives to the consumer. That, again, helps build an image of that product that is superior to something that I could have bottled pretty much overnight, which could be a vodka or a gin, which pretty much anyone could make in their backyard. So there's that. There's also provenance. And that, I think, is where there's a lot of similarities with luxury in the same way that a made in Italy or made in France label carries that cachet for a Gucci or a Louis Vuitton bag. The same idea that made in Scotland for Scotch, made in the cognac region or made in champagne for champagne brands. That, again, gives this idea. It's a certain idea of exclusivity that this product can only be made in that one particular place where there are certain quality standards associated with it. So the barriers to entry intrinsically are seen to be higher. That is really where that luxury element comes from. And then increasingly, many of these companies have started to play into experiences. So actually, two of the most commonly cited words in the latest Pernod Ricard annual report are conviviality, which makes all of forty-two appearances, and experience, which makes seventy appearances, and this idea that they want to build a community of people, enthusiasts of their brands, is very similar to luxury companies and how they host fashion shows around the world, get their communities together. Similarly, these brands, pop-ups, for example, especially using travel retail, this can be quite effective. You're passing through an airport, stop by a Shivas pop-up, learn something new about the brand, try a tasting. All of that can be hugely effective and help to elevate and premiumize the image of the brand in the consumer's mind.
1: We've touched on it loosely, but the Ricard family has a very strong and enduring influence on this business, a rich history and instructing the portfolio management team, which appropriately has the last name Ricard. How important is their influence on the business? And how do you think about this as a family-controlled business competing on a global scale?
0: It is ultimately a family business. It is, of course, a publicly listed company, but Controlling Family owns about a 14% economic interest in the company and has roughly over 20% of the voting rights because of special voting rights that are granted to French shareholders who own shares for more than 10 years. So it's clear that the founding family, the current CEO, is a grandson of the founder and a nephew of the former family CEO, Patrick Ricard. So there's a very strong continuing influence of the Ricard family on this company, which again, I think sometimes there can be a misperception that family controlled businesses are incompatible with shareholder capitalism. But I would argue that when it comes to brands, and we've seen this in other industries as well, in the luxury industry, for example, where it's not uncommon to have the founding families be very, very prominent within their companies, that in brand owning companies, where really the emphasis has to be on longevity and on not just preserving but enhancing brand equity over the long term, that a family shareholding can actually provide that steadying hand that we may not see with an entirely free float company. And if we compare, for example, the shareholder returns across Diageo, which is a 100% free float company, the market leader clearly, versus Pernod, which has that family influence, Correlation is not causation, but there is something to be said perhaps about the influence of a family in driving long-term returns because they tend to have maybe a multi-generational mindset, particularly when it comes to investment and also when it comes to tolerating discomfort in the short term, which is quite key. When it comes to these businesses, there clearly is an appreciation that they can be cyclical and therefore you need to have an appetite or a capacity to withstand short-term pain which not a lot of companies and particularly those that are 100% publicly owned might be able to do because of shareholder pressure to make unwise short-term decisions, such as perhaps cut back on advertising or cut back on spending, which actually would generate a long-term return. When you have a family influence, you could probably lean into the discomfort a little bit more and say, actually, this downturn is the perfect time for me to double down on the strategy and perhaps go a little bit faster than I might have been able to otherwise because my competitors are hamstrung. So all of that perhaps for specific companies in both the luxury industry and wines and spirits where there's a parallel can help actually rather than hinder, which we often know can be the case in other industries.
1: I think it's Tom Rousseau who famously refers to these types of businesses and their capacities to suffer when you speak to the investment cycle. How acquisitive are they and how do you think about building versus buying and the distribution advantages inherent in being a scaled spirits business?
0: Historically, they've been incredibly acquisitive. The story of this company from pretty much the get go has been one of acquisition from the second CEO, Mr. Patrick Ricard, who said that his ambition was to first conquer Europe and then conquer the world, which then set into motion a train of acquisitions, which culminated, I suppose, with their last big mega deal, which was the Absolute Vodka Vin and Sprint acquisition in 2008. Since then, the era of transformational M&A is likely behind them. Because of the scale that they have acquired from all of their earlier forays, and increasingly they have been experimenting with bolt-on deals. So, for example, Monkey Forty Seven, some tequila and agave-based spirits that they've been able to acquire. They've taken a minority interest in sovereign brands. I think those are the deals that they're increasingly pursuing, rather than necessarily transformational M and A. And they should be doing this because this is an industry where consumer preferences are constantly evolving. So, in order to stay on top of them, innovation. Firstly, organically is one way to do that. And they have definitely shown the ability to do that. For example, in India, they've launched their first premium smoky whiskey. They're launching a Chinese single malt in China. They've been very successful with flavor variants of Jameson. But equally, I think keeping an eye on what other people out there are doing in the market that you can also bring into your own fold can be helpful as well, because one of the biggest challenges for small brands is distribution. So a plug and play into Pernod's distribution infrastructure can be very meaningfully attractive for both parties, should it be a product that actually resonates with consumers, which needs to be the starting point for whether a deal makes sense or not.
1: I remember when Casamigos was acquired for something like a billion dollars, people were surprised at how much you could pay for these businesses. And I think that Diageo would probably suggested that, that was a highly accretive acquisition in retrospect. But Clearly, there are very, very significant distribution advantages in these businesses.
0: Exactly, which is very hard to replicate as a smaller company and very easy to leverage off once you have that infrastructure set up.
1: We spent a lot of time talking about some of the structural advantages and the ability to reinvest in the marketing heft behind these brands and supporting them. Clearly, there are also risks to these businesses. And you've seen the multiples that they trade at in the public markets compress a bit. There's the cyclical debate that we've covered. People talk about consumer trends changing, perhaps the impact of GLP ones. How do you think about all these impacts on the business and the ability to grow despite them?
0: It's an interesting one because I think the key debate at the moment is trying to unpack the structural versus the cyclical. And that can be quite complicated because to try to understand what was pandemic led demand versus a new normal versus what we're going to go back towards is going to be very hard to unpick without the benefit of further hindsight and time. So that is the biggest debate at the moment, that is this industry structurally going back to its 4 to 7% organic sales growth, which is what it historically delivered up until the pandemic, or is it going to be lower than that? I think at this moment, no one is meaningfully expecting it to be any higher because of the view that perhaps there have been some supercharged premiumization, which is going to take a few years to digest because some of these brands, not all, have taken price increases well in excess of what consumers can potentially digest. And this is quite category specific. For example, US whiskey, US cognac, these are really categories that took a lot of pricing. And we're seeing these categories specifically suffer the most at the moment, which doesn't necessarily affect Pernod Ricard as much. But it does cast a pall overall on the sector when you start to see this behavior. GLP ones, this interesting view that perhaps they kill off the appetite for consuming spirits. To us and to Pernod Ricard, spirits consumption is about conviviality and socializing. So if that occasion continues, then drinking less but better is also likely to continue. And I think problem drinkers is not something that any of these companies necessarily want on their client roster, but the association between GLP-1s, problem drinking, all of that is not particularly well-established at this time in the same way that perhaps GLP-1s and eating unhealthy food, for example, has a much more clear-cut connection. So that I think I'm less worried about. I actually worry much less about demand than I do potentially about supply. I think there may be an issue 20, 30 years down the line where we're already seeing, for example, the impact of climate change on the quality of grapes in the Cognac region, which is the only region that they're allowed to source grapes from. And we're seeing that with the hotter summers, many of these grapes are becoming less acidic and sweeter, which is really not that great for Cognac. So I think that could be interesting over time to see how the industry responds to that. There have been some innovations, which is trying to use new varietals of grapes that are more heat resistant. But over time, this is clearly something that needs more thinking. And I think maybe if we see how these businesses are evolving, data, machine learning, AI, all of this is becoming much more important because net revenue management and leveraging data to help maximize the resources of their sales infrastructure, as well as in pricing and in promotion and in tracking the efficiency of those promotions, all of that is starting to use a lot more data intensity and machine learning. And I wonder if this company longer term or the spirits industry more broadly, is in the best position to recruit the talent that would be required for the next generation of growth that might come from these tools. And then I think China is the big question mark. Even 20 years into it, we have seen Western style spirits go from 1% of the total market to 1.6%. So is there a structural barrier to them growing more or is it just happening, but at a slow pace and that over time we will see this accelerate? So that remains a question mark. All of the indications are that it will accelerate but we still need to be mindful of the fact that perhaps Chinese tastes will not necessarily converge to Western tastes to the extent that might be anticipated.
1: I'm loosely familiar with the three-tier system of alcohol distribution in the U.S. Does that have relevance for this business? Does it impact their ability to grow in North America? Is it relevant globally? I'm just not sure if how it impacts the business or not.
0: So the three-tier system is quite unique to the U.S. market, and the history of it goes back to prohibition, where again, the alcohol industry has the distinction of being the only industry to have had a constitutional amendment be repealed, which is prohibition, which was repealed by the 21st Amendment, that noble experiment, as it was called, which abysmally failed. But then what was put in its place was this three-tier system where the manufacturer has to be distinct from the supplier, has to be distinct from the retailer. So unlike any other country, for example, in the UK, Pernod Ricard could pick up the phone to Tesco, which is a leading supermarket chain here, call them up and say, we want to do a deal to stock our products in your store. In the US, they cannot do that with Walmart. They have to go through wholesalers who then talk to the retailers. So the unintended consequence of this has made actually profitability in the US market much higher than it perhaps should be for many of these spirits companies. Because of the inability of these retailers to negotiate directly with the manufacturer. So, that has meant typically that they take the prices that are passed on and they pass them on to the consumer. So, that is why Diageo, with its presence in the US, also generates its highest margins in this market. Pernod is not as big as Diageo in the US market, so actually doesn't benefit as much from the three tier system. It is not a system that's replicated elsewhere. So, in other markets, it is able to go directly to its customers itself.
1: In summary, if you think through this business and why it's so exceptional, they've got very significant brands. They've got scale advantages. They've got the benefit of some process power and knowing how to develop these things. If you were to summarize what particularly makes this business special and has attracted you to it over time, how would you still that into a single answer?
0: I'd say the combination of category exposure and market exposure are what's uniquely attractive about the business, which is that 45% of the sales of the company derive from three categories, cognac, Irish whiskey, and Scotch whiskey, sorry, not in that order, which are restricted in terms of where they can be supplied, which means that the barriers to entry and the ability to disrupt those categories is lower than it is elsewhere, for example, in vodka or in gin. So that's something I like. The market exposure is also something that's attractive in that it has a disproportionate amount of growth that is coming from the future growth markets of tomorrow, which are essentially China and India because of the huge populations, the number of people entering the global middle class, as well as people trading up from local spirits into Western style spirits. So the combination of market and category exposure, as well as an overlay of an innovation mindset, because I think that's actually quite fundamental and essential for a spirits business to remain relevant to future consumers is to have that idea of constantly being nimble and agile and trying something new. I think all of those three things are probably something that constitute might be the Pernod Ricard's special sauce.
1: And our concluding question, always the same. As you think about this business and your history studying it, what lessons can be applied to other investments? And as an extension of that, what other lessons can be borrowed from Pernod Ricard and applied to operating other businesses?
0: I do think this notion of family ownership, which we touched on earlier, it's not always the hindrance to innovation and value creation that may be feared by the market, because that multi-generational investment mindset that many of these family-controlled businesses of brand owners have, it does add a lot of value to shareholders over time. And I think another really interesting feature about this organization is its ability to empower local organizations to know what's most appropriate for their markets and to be able to empower them to act accordingly. That decentralized approach works very well in an area where local tastes are maybe quite distinct. They may be evolving in different manners. So that requires local management to remain nimble and agile. And it's quite interesting to see how much cross-pollination there has been among the employees at Pernod Ricard. For example, two of their former CFOs actually now run divisional businesses as CEOs One in the UK and one in LATAM and EMEA, which I think is quite interesting and unusual compared to other companies that might put people into boxes saying you're a CFO, you're going to stay a CFO forever. That isn't the case with this company. And then I think the clarity of growth ambitions and focusing them around these four must win markets is essential because that helps cut through the noise of the 160 markets around the world where they are and says these are the four markets, the US, China, India and global travel retail which absolutely are battlegrounds that have to be won in the future. And that instills the clarity of purpose within the company. So being clear about what you stand for and where you want to win is probably something that's quite a useful lesson to take away as well.
1: Well, Swetha, this was a wonderful and fascinating crash course on spirits on promoter Card broadly. Appreciate you joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.